This is Car Expert. And I had the chance to drive the B250, which has been out for a few years now, but Mazda kind of felt like they never got a proper go at the launch. From what I remember Hyundai and Kia saying to us, they're very keen to get into this segment given how popular utes are here. They need to set Ranger as the benchmark. Two Chinese brands sat in the top 10, which I think might be a first. It's certainly the first that I can recall. Hello, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy Turner. How are you? I'm fabulous, thank you. And hello, James Wong. Greetings, friends. <laughs> Can you do it in the Toy Story voice, though? Which Toy Story? You know the voice? aliens. Greetings. Uh, <laughs> you know those guys. Yeah, yeah, I know them, but I can't say it in that voice. They only have that one live, that one line where they're like, "You have saved our lives. We are eternally grateful." <laughs> <laughs> That's really off topic, and we're ten seconds in. <laughs> I love how I got that completely wrong too, but we still stuck with it. Thank you. Um, okay, yeah, you've just uh, come back from Sydney after having a spin in the Volkswagen ID. Four. What did you think? Yeah, so Volkswagen, um, much to its frustration, is really battling to get EVs to Australia to compete with Tesla and all the rest. And uh, it's it has secured uh, an all-important ID4 mid-sized SUV for late 2023. Um and in order to kind of tide people over and give its dealers and customers a bit of a chance to have a look and get media involved and do all that stuff, it's brought a couple of UK spec ID4s over and gave us a quick chance to have a steer on a, on a, on a, on a little technical test circuit. So I can't say that I've come away with a holistic view of how the ID4 goes, but this is basically Volkswagen's Tesla Model Y, very similar dimensionally, um, has two different battery options, one with about 350k range, one with more than 500k range, rear-wheel drive with a rear-drive motor. So the benefits of that flat MEB platform means you can go back to the old-school rear drive. Um, you've also got that lovely flat floor that only the skateboard platform can give you. Um, look, it's it's a very interesting thing. I mean, this, this, this has won some awards, um, but it's also going to be about three years old by the time it gets to Australia. And based on that timing, I don't see how they'll be able to bring the updated one. There'll be a period of time where it is the pre-update model. Companies saying a starting price around 60 grand, which is top of the tree Tiguan 162 money. Um, and, and that's probably going to be for the standard range. The, the, the longer range one might be closer to 70. But if it can do that, it'll be about at the Tesla price point with badge recognition that you know some brands don't have. Um, on first impression, there's nothing about it that struck me as necessarily class leading. It's charging speeds, it's range, it's performance in terms of acceleration, its interior layout and tech. All of it's nice, all of it's serviceable, it's very spacious, it's very practical. Not particularly exciting. There's nothing about it like a Kia EV6 or Ionic 5 where you go, oh, my God, it's a spaceship. It doesn't have a Tesla's giant screen. Um, It's not going to blow your socks off, but that's kind of not what Volkswagen's about, right? Volkswagen's never really been about that. Um, what this car does is it, is it gives Volkswagen customers the chance to get something they can plug in rather than stick a Bowser into. And that is something that a lot of people are asking for. Electrified cars had more than 10% market share last month, um, and that's only going to grow moving forward. So while Volkswagen will not be very frustrated that it's taking so long to get its EVs here, um, at least it's able to start talking about it and actually show us some things here which is an advancement, I would say. Mm. We didn't have pricing for this yet, do we? Not official ones. The company yeah. said that the base sort of fleet business focus, 350K range one is going to be Tiguan 162 money. That's high 50s to mm. around 60 grand. You could say before on-road costs, but then state rebates basically offset on-road costs. So you're sort of looking at somewhere about that 60 grand price point, um, which is about half of the course, really. Do you think it's, it's worth the money? Until we really spend time on it, to be honest with you, it doesn't feel like it really moves the game forward. My only concern for the car is if it already feels middle of the pack, by the time it gets here in another year or so, is it going to be dated? Is it going to be enough? Volkswagen is still playing catch up compared to some competitors. I don't know whether that hallowed badge on the front is enough to make up for all of that immediately. Um, so it's not a bad car, whether it's a class leader. I'm, I'm not thinking at this stage that it will be. Um, but, you know, maybe it can wow us and, and get it here with a really compelling price and spec sort of proposition. Who knows? Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking way more EVs in the news, oh, which is actually coming up now. 
Hello, Jack Quick. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. I'm looking forward to hearing all about your Fraser Island trip with Mazda right after we do the news, but we're going to start off with the first story. Volvo Australia planning to be EV only by 2026, which is apparently before other countries. Yeah, so it's a pretty big deal, actually. So, um, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, Mandy, Volvo Australia is going to be going all electric by 2026. What this means is they're going to be selling their last petrol-powered cars in 2025. And um, as you mentioned, uh, this is going to be before other countries. So Volvo, uh, Volvo, no, they said Volvo. Volvo <laughs> uh, globally is going uh, EV only by 2030. But um, Volvo Australia is going to be doing it four years before that in 2026. Um, so uh, Volvo will be the, the first brand in Australia to fully transition from you know, internal combustion engine vehicles and hybrids to fully EV. You don't take into account, obviously, brands such as like Tesla, Polestar and uh, company, brands like that because they're already all electric. But this Volvo is the first to go from uh, internal combustion to all electric, which is super cool. And um, so Volvo Australia currently offers um, two electric vehicles in the form of the XC40 Recharge Pure Electric and the C40 Recharge Pure Electric, which are essentially the same car. One just has a wagon SUV style and the other has a coupe SUV body. Um, an interesting quote, though, has uh, Volvo Car Australia Managing Director Stephen Connor said there won't be any gaps in the model range, which means we're going to be most likely seeing electric versions of every car that Volvo currently sell, uh, sells, including maybe like a sedan, maybe a wagon, something like uh, I'm quite interested to be uh, looking forward to. Um, but uh, what we do know at this stage next for Volvo is what a vehicle called the EX90, which is a, an all-electric all electric, um, successor to the XC90. It's been teased a couple of times. And by the time you're probably listening to this, it's going to be most likely revealed. I think it's been revealed um, in November 9. So when you're listening to this, you might already know what it looks like and you'll have more knowledge than I do. Um, and then the, another model we know is it's going to be an, L, an all-electric um, successor to the uh, XC90, uh, sorry, XC60 as well, which is like the medium-sized SUV. But there are another, th- uh, another three cars planned because Volvo is planning to reveal a new electric model every year uh, for the next five years. So we're going to be getting lots of Volvo EVs. Um, because as you know they're going all electric by 2030 globally and in australia by 2026 which is the whole point of the story um but i want to know guys do you think this is a big deal that uh australia is going uh volvo australia is going uh, all electric by 2026 before the before the the company is doing it globally yeah it is and um one of the reasons for that is it's uh volvo ever since you know safety became standard across every single manufacturer not just a few volvo's really sort of struggled i think in in some ways to 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 convince customers what is it that volvo offers that other luxury brands don't and this is a way that it can really stand apart from every other luxury brand aside from the startups that you mentioned jack the teslas of the world and the polestars of the world Although Polestar, of course, is a Volvo brand, but I digress. Um, It also taps into the fact that it sources most of its cars from China, and China is far and away the EV leader in the world with basically a dominant position in the EV supply chain. So it's really leveraging its assets that it has um, and and differentiating itself and sort of future-proofing itself and getting a real lead. I I was uh, interviewing the boss of Audi Australia just late last week up in Sydney, for example, and that company won't get the Q4 e-tron, which is the highly in-demand small electric SUV until 2024 in Australia. We've seen a number of other luxury brands struggle to get adequate stock here. And then you've got Volvo coming out and saying, we're going to be selling 20,000 cars and they're all going to be EVs within just a couple of years. So it's a line in the sand. It's an enormous statement. And it really put Volvo right back on you know, the top of everybody's minds and uh, if you really wanted to make a splash as a brand, you probably couldn't have done it better. So, yeah, an absolutely enormous announcement from that company. What are your thoughts, j Yeah, similar um, story here. I have to echo Mike's comments that, you know, we're, we're seeing the, the, an increasing or pretty much every of one of the legacy manufacturers um, being unable to really transition into a, a, a 
decent amount of volume of fully electric vehicles, whether it's um, in just bringing products here to begin with or getting a substantial enough volume to satisfy demand. And the fact that Volvo Australia is taking a leadership position, not just um, within its own global network, but also within the local industry here in Australia, I think is a really big move. And I, I think we have to give them props for committing to it. And at the, at the moment, their, their products are already fairly affordable in relative terms. Like when you look at an XC40 or a C40 recharge versus the competition, you can get, you know, a fully decked out um, XC40 recharge with 300 kilowatts for maybe twenty dollars or $30,000 less than the equivalent Mercedes-Benz EQA. So I think that speaks for itself. And like Mike said, having um, the backing of Chinese manufacturing not only um, helps in terms of volume and stuff, but also likely um, won't will minimize freight issues and, you know, those kind of um, supply uh, constraints and bottlenecks that we've been seeing for so long. So, um, yeah, big, big applause to them, I guess. Mm, absolutely. Well, let's hope we can keep that applause going uh, for the next story. Uh, Volvo, um, it looks like could be helping Geely bring the radar ute to Australia, Jack. Yeah, so um, some more Volvo news. So, yeah, as you mentioned, Mandy, um, Volvo Australia could be uh, teaming up with its parent company, Geely, um, to bring the electric radar ute to Australia, which is super exciting. It'll give some um, competition to the LDV ET60 if it happens. That is, I will add. Um, so uh, Volvo Australia Managing Director Stephen Connor, who is the same man that I mentioned in the previous story, um, said the brand uh, could offer back office support for Geely and distribute the, the Radar RD6, which is that the official name of the Radar Ute, um, locally. Um, but the, he did mention that he hasn't reached out to Geely yet, though. So nothing to report huge to yet, but potentially the possibility of it coming to Australia, which is definitely not a no. <laughs> um, Are you telling me there's a chance? <laughs> yeah, well, potentially, yeah. So um, uh, Mr. Connor also said he'd love to, to be the sales company uh, for Radar. Um, as I mentioned before, if it were to come here, it'd be go head-to-head with the LDV ET60, which is uh, launching in Australia this month. Um, for the for the radar RD6, though, um, Chinese deliveries of that model um, aren't going to be starting until the fourth quarter of this year, so potentially next month. So it's not technically on sale yet, even in China, even though it looks super cool if you haven't already seen some pictures. Um, as I mentioned, seeing it hasn't gone on sale yet in China, we still don't know a lot of the tech specs, um, such as like um, what it's powered by, or what powers it, uh, outputs and terms of um, towing capabilities, payload, this, that and the other. What we do know, though, is it's built on Geely's sustainable experience architecture, which underpins a few other cars as well um, from the Geely uh, nameplate company, such as the Smart Hashtag One and a few other cars too that, can't, that aren't coming to mind right now, but there are a few. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'd love to know, guys, would this be a, the Radar RD6 electric ute be a hit if it came to Australia? Hard to say. Uh, there is, I mean, uh, Utes are about 20% of the Australian car market. Three of the top five selling vehicles in the country are diesel dual cab Utes. The jury's out on whether Australia's large diaspora of tradies are going to want to switch over to EVs, but there's no doubt that as the, the interest and the awareness grows, there will be at least a subset that see the benefit. And there's also a growing number of people who actually want to buy a ute, not as a tool of trade, but as a lifestyle vehicle. And so all of those people, I think, would be quite well served by a car like this. The reality is if Australia wants to get its car park CO2 emissions down, it can't do it without, you know, electrifying its workhorse part of the market. And at the moment, we just don't have a lot coming, frankly. There's no EV Hilux around the corner. There's no EV Ranger around the corner. So we need some alternatives. And uh, I've been wondering about this car for a while, actually, because, you know, Geely's a pretty major entity that's revealing a new model every other week. And if Volvo can leverage that global partnership and actually find a way to become a distributor for it, I think it would give Volvo a completely new project to work on. And yeah, I think there would be a market for it. I don't think it would be at the top of the charts alongside the Hilux and Demon max but i think it would definitely have a have at least a niche audience and it would probably go a long way to showing people that you actually can have a battery powered ute and it actually can do some jobs even if it can't do all of the jobs you want it to do you agree with moco 
Uh, yes and no. I think with the um, with the dual cab Ute market, you've got a very specific um, set of buyers that have a very specific set of requirements, even if they're never going to use the vehicle to its capabilities. Um, I feel that a lot of people um, that buy uh, Hiluxes and Rangers as lifestyle vehicles, as Mike mentioned, uh, you know, potentially towing caravans. They want to go on extended road trips out into the bush and or at least feel like they can do that. And, you know, without really knowing too much about the specs of um, the Geely as well and, and, and the upcoming ET60 as well, a lot of these electric utes, at least in their current forms, are fairly compromised once you start loading them up with kit and tow loads and all that kind of stuff. And so I just feel like, you know, when, when we talk about holistic um, solutions to um, reducing emissions and alternative powertrain technologies as the wider industry, I feel like when we when we think about stragglers or, or you know, um, segments where it's kind of difficult, it's stuff like this in, in these, you know, commercial markets where um, – the vehicles are required to do a very specific role. And so you think you think of like an urban tradie, for example, where a delivery van makes a lot of sense as an EV because, you know, they're only driving, you know, a few 50 to 100 kilometers a day. The small battery means they can be recharged and they're probably not going to be loading up to payload, for example. But when you've got somebody that typically buys a Hilux SR5 or a Ranger Wildtrak that wants that three and a half ton towing capacity and potentially 1,000 kilometers between filling up at the, at the fuel station, then that's where these kind of vehicles may not stack up to the masses just yet. Um, we also don't have a market for the unibody-based um, utes like America does where you have things like the Hyundai Santa Cruz and the Ford um, Maverick. So we have this weird hot <laughs> this weird sort of segmentation in Australia where I think there's definitely a niche for it and there's probably a lot of people that want a ute that's a bit more environmentally friendly given these are some of the biggest polluters on our roads. But in terms of like whether it's going to appeal or become a, like a sales hit here, I think it would be a very interesting exercise to actually monitor how that goes because I think um, ute buyers like people who buy seven-seat SUVs, they never actually will use three and a half towing tons capacity or they won't ever actually use all the different four-wheel drive modes that you have on a selectable all-wheel drive system but they at least like to know that they have that capability on tap if they need it yeah well another ute that we have been waiting for for quite some time uh the kia ute has been snapped testing in korea jack Yes, exactly. Speaking of utes, yeah. Yeah. so yeah, this really strange uh, Kia-branded test mule has been spied testing in Korea. Now, the strange thing is the front end is of the Mojave SUV, but it's also a dual-cab ute. So, like, it's this strange uh, mishmash, which I, I find quite interesting looking at the photos if you haven't already seen them on the website. Um, little in, uh, official details are known about this uh, dual-cab ute uh, as of yet, but Kia earlier in the year said it's building a dedicated electric pickup and a strategic model for emerging markets. So they're working on two different pickups. Will would love that term. <laughs> and <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so one of the utes um, will be produced alongside an SUV in the US um, from 2024. Um, this uh, this uh, EV ute is uh, claimed to be mid-sized, so it's going to be similar in size to the Ford Ranger, if you think along, and the Hilux of those kind of category. Um, but rumours suggest that the strategic model could be offered with internal combustion engines, which is, I think, that's what's this um, model that's been spied in Korea. It's um it's unclear if the the Mojave front end of this test mule is uh, born of convenience or if it bear, and bears no resemblance to the the final product of, product of what this uh, dual cab Ute is going to be. But you do have to note that the Mojave does make a good base for what could be a Ute because it's built on a ladder frame chassis, just like uh, four wheel drives, and would make a lot of sense in a dual cab Ute and is powered by a 3-litre V6 turbo diesel, so it's got some grunt. But the only thing is it's over a decade old, so I don't know if that would necessarily make sense in a brand-new dual-cab ute, having something that's already 10 years old, or I think I'm going to be a little bit rude here, but it sounds quite like the Hilux. Um, it's just... <laughs> um, it's it, truth, it be <laughs> <laughs> But... Um, I don't know if I'd be expecting that from Kia, but who am I to know? There are no official details at this stage. And um, beyond this, it's also unclear 
um, if, if any of the, either the EV or this, um, the strategic model, uh, the EV utes or the uh, utes will be coming to Australia at all. Um, we'll just have to wait and see. But I want to know, guys, what do you think of this strange-looking um, Kia dual-cab ute that was spied? I might go first on this one. Um, I think with the what's interesting about the Hyundai and Kia utes, we've been talking about them since I was probably Jack's age or younger. So it's we've been talking about these things for a really, really long time. And I was really interested to see um, the Mojave Frankenstein stuff as well because, like Jack says, it's really the only vehicle in their global portfolio from th- that would be appropriate for a dual cab ute um, that meets you know the requirements, for example, of Australian customers. Um, so in terms of like what what these two vehicles will stand for, I assume that when they say dedicated electric one, it's going to be based on EGMP and perhaps be, you know, based on a version of their, um, the EV9 platform, which is about a Telluride-sized electric SUV. So, you know, that sort of makes sense. And being a US-focused um, model, you know, you've got things like the F-150 Lightning and um, all those kind of – there's a mis a, a mix of electric utes going there that will be again lifestyle vehicles that aren't necessarily required to tow as heavy or you know load up to payload. And in terms of this other dual cab one for emerging markets, I think this is the one that um, will be a prime candidate for the Australian market, provided the ute the ute segment doesn't shift so much into going into the new age. But um, as Jack correctly pointed out, most of the utes in the segment currently are actually very old. Even the Ford Rangers. Um, T6 architecture dates back to, I think, almost or over 10 years ago. The the PX or whatever that generation was called debuted, I think, in 2012 or 2011. So most of those workhorses are based on really old underpinnings. So if it was to come out in the next year, it wouldn't necessarily be that far behind the rest of the pack. Plus, having a V6 diesel option would be very favorable given the um, the Amarok and the Ranger are really the only two that offer that at the moment. So um, I think from what I remember Hyundai and Kia saying to us over the years is that they're very keen to get into this segment given how popular um, utes are here and also their, their increasing brand recognition. So to come in with something that's at least – they need to set – Ranger as the benchmark and work towards that. Yeah, I wouldn't read too much into the Mojave design. I mean, the fact that it's a body on frame vehicle means it makes a perfect mule. And mules are often, you know, they use old bits and pieces alongside new ones to sort of hone the vehicle as they're testing it. Australia is kind of uh, a bit betwixt in between because, in some ways, it is a developing market because we still drive lots of combustion vehicles and. These days, car manufacturers consider developed first world markets to be the ones that are going EV only, and Australia is a third world market in that regard. In other ways, though, we're a first world market in that we demand the very, very latest in interior technologies and safety features, which if you're making a cheap and cheerful crappy ute for the, for the third world, you can't really put you know, two airbags and no AEB in something and try and sell it in Australia. So here's going to have to get its product planning right and it's going to have to have Kia Australia intimately involved from day one with the project. Now, the fact that Kia and Hyundai Australia have been remorselessly bugging their head offices in Korea for use for many, many years tells me that they would have been involved in this and they would know a lot more about this than they're telling us. Um, and, you know, Kia is currently third in market year to date. If it was to get a ute, it would become second pretty much straight away. Uh, and that would mean that Kia would be the number two market, some number two brand uh, behind only Toyota, but ahead of Mazda and ahead of Mitsubishi. Pretty much as simple as that. So it would revolutionise Kia Australia if it got a ute. Um, and if it was able to get back into that commercial space, it would be the absolute cherry on top for what has been a staggering period of growth for that brand. So there's a little bit of uh, water to go under the bridge there, but I think it's a pretty damn good sign that we are going to get something in the very near future after, as Wongi said, many, many, many years of <laughs> waiting. Indeed. And the last story, Moko actually gave us a little bit of a teaser of this earlier, Jack, the Audi Q4 e-tron. The small SUV is going to be a bit of a wait for us here. Yes, yeah, did get a bit of a teaser. <laughs> uh, yeah, so um, Audi Q4 e-tron is um, a little way off, as you mentioned, Mandy. It's uh, set to launch in Australia in early 2024. What that means is it's going to be roughly three years old at that point, and um, as it was revealed in April 2021. And um, so seeing it's so delayed, um, a- Audi will be beaten to the market Um by related MEB-based uh, EVs such as 
the Volkswagen ID4 and ID5, as well as the Cooper Born. Um, the Skoda Enyaq, which is also MEV based, is due to arrive in Australia roughly that early 2024 uh, timeline as well. I just thought I'd put that in. Um, reason why the Audi Q4 e-tron is so long overdue is due to a number of factors, uh, including the chip shortage, a semiconductor chip shortage, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, high European demand because of those two, and then also the lack of a national EV strategy in Australia. So um, Audi Australia Marketing Director Jeff Mannering um, says that he's fighting hard to get production capacity uh, for the Q4 e-tron because he knows that there's demand for the car, but we won't be getting it until early 2024. I have a quick question, guys. Do you think the, the Q4 e-tron, once it gets here, will be too old and it'll be irrelevant by that stage? Well, it's an interesting question, and it really depends on whether um, the, the the launch in Australia will coincide with a midlife refresh, like we might see with the Volkswagen ID three. So we, that car went into market years ago, and likewise, the ID four and ID five have been on sale over in Europe, for example, for quite some time. And we at least know that with the ID three, um, Australia's launch will coincide with a midlife refresh. Now, for Audi, I bil- I would think that there would have to be some sort of running change, if not a midlife refresh on that vehicle for it to launch in Australia three years into its life. And um, otherwise, you know, given what we know about the the current MEB set of um, SUVs particularly, um, the the specs and the performance and stuff doesn't really line up with what's available at the moment. It's a little bit on the, the lower ends. So they're a bit slower. The range isn't as great. And, you know, when you give it another year and a half, um, years worth of development and, and new product cycles, you might start to see these Volkswagen electric vehicles start to fall behind. So I think, you know, what the Audi does do compared to say um, an ID4, at least from what I've heard and read about the ID4, is that, you know, it addresses some of the complaints around interior quality and, you know, some of the tech and obviously looks a little bit more substantial and a bit more befitting of whatever they're going to charge for it. What were they going to charge for it? We don't know yet, but I would say if Volkswagen's planning to sell the ID4 for the price of a high-spec Tiguan, I would assume the Q4 e-tron will be the price of a high-spec Q3. So, you know, you're looking into that 70, 80, maybe even $90,000 mark for a high-spec one, which is a lot of money for a small car. And so you'd hope that by the time it gets here, there's um, the company has done enough from a, an engineering as well as um, feature packing perspectives to um, ensure that the value proposition stacks up with the local buyer set because Audi, at least of late, has been really, really good with um, making its offerings quite competitive in terms of pricing and specifications where BMW and Mercedes are going out of this world in terms of how much they continue to price things up and remove features due to semiconductor shortages. Audi's maintained a pretty good balance of that stuff. So you'd hope that they'd be able to carry that into the Q4 and Q4 Sportback e-trons when they finally arrive here. There's a couple of major issues here. One is that every single competitor brand to Audi has got an electric car in this space already. Tesla Model Y, BMW iX1, Mercedes GLA, Volvo XC40, etc., etc. So Audi is the only luxury brand of any volume that does not have an electric, affordable, small SUV. Its cheapest EV is 150 grand, which is the e-tron. So that's a real problem for Audi. Um, it gets overlooked by its factories in Europe far more than other luxury brands, Australian operations do. And while Volkswagen Group Australia does say that it's because we don't have emission standards and fuel efficiency standards, blah, 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 the fact of the matter is every other brand of substance finds a way to navigate this in a way that is better than what Audi and the wider Volkswagen Group does. The second is the head of the Volkswagen Group Australia, Paul Sansom, has said, quote, we are by some distance Australia's primary importers of European passenger vehicles and will become the most significant source of EVs in this country, end quote. He said that in, uh, when was it, about March of this year, April of this year. Now, you cannot say that when you don't have EVs to sell. And while it will at some point have EVs to sell, at the moment it doesn't. And the longer this drags on, the worse the Volkswagen Group looks, the more customers it loses, and reputations are hard to win and easy to lose. And just assuming that you're going to start racking up sales because you've got a badge that people recognise, 
The likes of Tesla and BYD have shown that that ain't the, that ain't the truth anymore. So I think Audi's in a world of hurt, and these delays, while it's not Audi Australia's fault, and I don't blame them for it, these are factors that are beyond their control, it is going to hurt them massively, and they are looking increasingly isolated from their competitors. So I think it's a real problem. Very interesting points you make there, Moco. That's the end for the news. Hit carexpert.com.au for more. Jack, your job is not done just quite yet. Uh, <laughs> we did mention a couple of weeks ago you you went on your first uh, feature piece, I suppose we could call it. We stepped away from the news desk and went to Fraser Island with Mazda to drive the uh, BT50. How was it? Spoiler alert, it was freaking awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, as you mentioned, Mandy, I uh, went on my first away-from-home kind of uh, launch is how I would kind of say it. And, um, yeah, so I went to uh, Gary Fraser Island and had the chance to drive over the BT-50, which has been out for a few years now. Um, but Mazda kind of felt like they never got a proper go at the launch of the BT-50. So this is kind of like something to kind of just drum up some interest and have a bit of fun with the BT-50, taking it somewhere that's like a bucket list uh, a tourist attraction for people that do go uh, four-wheel driving and um I found it super interesting. So I'm going to gonna paint a picture. So I came in on this charter flight flying, uh, flying in at 500 feet onto, onto Fraser Island and it was just beautiful. There were just trees and uh, sand and tracks and it was just like a – I'd never seen anything like it before because I'd never been to Fraser Island until until that point. And um, we landed on this kind of uh, – you, if you've been to Fraser Island before, you might have landed on the beach. Uh, but this time we landed on this really kind of – I'm trying to be nice, but like a derelict runway that looked completely out of place. But um, once we arrived, we saw these huge – uh, swarms of BT fifties that uh, it was kind of cool to see, and um, so I hopped in and I was driving on the way back, and I'd never driven on any kind of sandy road before properly. I'd done briefly because I'm from a farm, but like never properly in the sense that I was uh, by myself. And um, I had a passenger with me, and we were going through all of these bumps, and it was so lumpy bumpy is the way that I describe it and I kept on apologizing for all of the the uh, bumps and um and I had to realize in the end that Fraser Island is just really bumpy there's nowhere to avoid the bumps and you have to at one point just kind of give up on the apologies and just kind of go with it so um that was one interesting tip that I <laughs> I found while driving but um we the next day we had our big um a big uh, tour drive of Fraser Island. It was roughly six to eight hours. It was a long day um, and I was very tired afterwards, but we broke it up into a short little stint where I swapped um, being a passenger and a, uh, and a driver. But I drove the first bit and um, uh, it was quite fun just getting on the road. And then uh, we had a uh, uh, we were in a big convoy and leading us was uh, Carl Reindler, who's a, a former super, a V8 supercars driver, and he was giving us all of these tips uh, throughout driving and, and before we got started too, obviously. But um, a few obvious ones such as like airing down your tyres, um, making sure that you're aware of your the vehicle size and that you're staying in the wheel ruts. And um, the most... The, the most uh, important tip that stood out to me was um to not stress too much about driving and just kind of take it with the flow because the moment that you start to stress out and you kind of fight the car the the bt50 or whatever you're driving the four-wheel drive is going to react to that badly and then that's when things go off the rails and things can go wrong so as long as you're uh, cool as a cucumber you're going to be fine and all of the things that we did while we were driving uh, the BT50 on Fraser Island, anyone could do it. It was so, it was so fun in the end, draining but fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we saw a few of the, the major tourism attractions, such as like um, Eli Creek, Happy Valley, and the Mahino Shipwreck um, on our main drive, which was quite cool to see, and I kind of felt like a tourist. But um, it was uh, I kind of had to absorb it all because I'd never been before. And I, although I was there for the BT50, I was just as excited about the tourist attractions. And um, while we were driving, we got a chance to drive on the beach, which was super cool. The speed limits were um, at 80 k's an hour, so it's like a big wow. highway. So super cool. And um, driving on beachy, sand, like sandy beaches is just 
such a strange experience. I don't even know how to describe it. It's similar to snow, but like it's not. And you kind of just have to experience it to fully understand um, what I'm talking about, <laughs> which is uh, I found lots of fun. And um, I did a, a really cool uh, water crossing as well. That was probably the most challenging aspect of my trip with Mazda. Um, it wasn't cha- wasn't super challenging, but the most nerve-wracking part, I'd say. But um, it looked really scary. There was The water looked quite deep, and I was like, oh, what about the waiting depth of the car? What about? <laughs> um, I didn't have to worry at all, really, because... Um, the BT50 just walked through it. It was just no stress at all. We didn't even have to put it into four-wheel drive low. We just had it in four-wheel drive high, did all of our driving on our four high. So it kind of tells you what kind of level of driving we were driving at. So we had to kind of cater for all different levels as well. But um, the once we got back from our big main drive, we got the opportunity uh, to go for a quick little drive to Lake Mackenzie, which is another one of the big um, tourist attractions of uh, Fraser Island, and I was obsessed. It was so cool. <laughs> the water was so clear, although we didn't obviously drive the car through it because that's extremely bad. Um, it was such a cool chance to experience that because there's no other way that you could really get to it in a, like you can only kind of travel around uh, in a full drive. But um, I will mention uh, we stayed at the, uh, the Kingfisher Bay Resort and um, around that uh, the area is a small bit of uh, paved road, so like bitumen, and there were so many Havel Jollions that I saw. It was so yeah. random. I know, right? So I I really have no clue what they were doing there. <laughs> but um, I'm not my, a lot of didn't know about. Yeah, oh, <laughs> that's literally. Like I, I assume they're all rental cars of some uh, some capacity, but they can't leave the resort. They're, like, it's, they're just stuck. And I don't understand the point of bringing the car across on the barge if it's just going to sit parked. But anyway, that's up to them yeah. in particular. But <laughs> And um. But yeah, a few things that I noticed about um, the BT50, I'll kind of wrap it up now, uh, is that it was super capable, um, more so than I thought, and um, I was really comfy. I thought that I would be, my back would be really sore after driving six to eight hours plus on during one day, and um, but no, it was super comfy. I it, I was just tired. I felt like I could do it um, all over again if I had a coffee, pretty much. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I definitely recommend going. I'd love to go back. I'd love to take my Jimny there um, to Fraser Island, see how it goes. I don't think it would be as comfortable as the <laughs> as um, the BT50. But, yeah, it was a super, super really cool um, first ex- uh, away from home uh, launch. Do you guys have any questions for me? I want to know how how do you actually get cars on the island? Like, is it a on a barge, and and how long does it take? Yeah, so um, you have to do it on a barge. Um, the uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It's just like a big boat, but then um, you can probably fit about ten cars on the barge, and then you sit up above. Um, we on the way back took uh, five or six BT50s from Fraser Island back to Harvey Bay. And um, I assume that's the the normal route that you would take if you were taking vehicles to and from there. I think there are a few different options to get to and from Fraser Island, but it's only by barge. And uh, both ways to Harvey Bay, it's um, roughly 30 minutes. So I, I kind of like uh, started dozing off because I was so tired. Um, <laughs> and then little did we know I was at my destination. So it, it was really cool. I liked it. Awesome. Well, we, um, when can we read the article? Yeah, so I'm currently working on it at the moment. I am going away for a little bit um, on a cruise for the next couple of weeks, so I, I won't be able to write on it, uh, write anything on it in this stage. I'd love to get it uh, published uh, before the end of the year, I'll say, at this stage. I've got a few other things that I'm working on as well, um, including another review at some point, so um, it'll be coming at some stage. <laughs> <laughs> busy, busy man. Um, awesome, Jack. Well, we're probably not going to speak to you next week then if you're going on a cruise. No, I'm going on leave as of Monday next week so wish where me luck. are you going uh, so i'm going to uh vanuatu and new caledonia on a 10-day cruise which is going to be super fun i'm looking I forward to it did exactly the same thing about 10 years ago so oh, you love it yes <laughs> 
Awesome. Have a great time and uh, we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Mandy. Well, we finally have V-Facts for last month, October's new car sales figures, Moco, and it looks like it was a good month. It was a good month, yeah. yeah. Sales are up by 16.9% over the same month last year to 87,299 vehicles. That's the best October tally since 2018. So, We're now getting back to a point where we're in that lovely pre-pandemic period where the world was great and there were no issues and we didn't even know what semiconductors were Um, and now we can't stop thinking about them. It also means that the uh, cumulative year-to-date sales figure of uh, a smidgen under 900,000 sales has actually pulled ahead of 2021's cumulative tally at this time by 0.9%. So we're on track now, despite all of the headwinds, to beat last year's tally. We're not back at all-time record territory just yet, but we are slowly climbing the way back up the ladder. Toyota, obviously, as always, was miles ahead of everybody else. That's not even news at this point. Um, Probably the takeaway for me was that the Ford Ranger, the new generation Ranger, which um, we've done a little bit of content on here at Car Expert, as some might have noticed, um, (laughs) was the top selling vehicle overall for the month. Um, And Ford cannot get its hands on enough of them because the wait lists only continue to grow. Most of the growth last month came from SUVs, though, of all shapes and sizes. 37% overall SUV growth while capturing a uh, pretty remarkable 55.5% overall market share. Um, So SUVs and light commercial utes and vans combined had 80% of the market. Then you throw in heavy trucks. That means that passenger cars, so sedans, hatchbacks, wagons, people movers, coupes and convertibles, all of the traditional cars, uh, only had 15% market share. Uh, that was about four times that just a few years ago. So uh, really that that is declining. Electrified cars, so electric and hybrid vehicles, did well capturing more than 11% share. That was despite a bit of a flat month from Tesla, which at the moment tends to have real spikes at the end of every quarter, although Elon Musk says they are trying to smooth that out. And the Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries, which is the peak body for all the car brands, said that all signs point to supply constraints Shrinking, not going away overnight. Wait lists aren't going to disappear tomorrow. Some brands will be worse affected than others. But the general consensus is that we are starting to see some of those pressure points easing. And I would imagine 2023 should only get better from there. Guys, hit me up with your questions. Let's break this thing down. Oh, I want to know how close it actually was between the Ranger and the Hilux. I'm assuming Hilux was second. Hilux was second. Uh, It wasn't actually that close. So there was about 700, I'm doing maths in my head and I'm a writer, not a mathematician, but about 750 units in it. So the Ranger was 5,628, the Hilux 4,884. Having recently driven both of them, the Ranger is a demonstrably better vehicle, but I suppose you'd buy as our creatures of habit. Number three was the Toyota RAV4 with uh, 3,222. Richie Benno would love saying that. Um, So the top three, pretty much the usual top three, really. Master 6, 5 in fourth, MGZS in fifth. 2,293 sales, Um, a lot of them to rental companies, I would imagine. But nevertheless, it shows the value of offering a dirt cheap, cheerful, basic, no-frills SUV Um, because, man, that's a lot of MGZSs. Isuzu D-Max in sixth, so three utes inside the top six. Kia Sportage seventh, MG3 eighth. So, again, another cheap and cheerful MG. Turns out if you can sell cars cheap, people will buy them. Mitsubishi ASX in ninth and Mitsubishi Triton in tenth. Not a lot of surprises. A couple further down, the new Ford Everest had an absolute ripper of a month, 1,271 sales, nipping at the heels of the Prado, and deservedly so. Hasn't quite overtaken it yet, but hopefully uh, it will soon because it's a better vehicle. Um, And the Tesla Model Y, 1,076 cars, far and away the most popular luxury medium SUV, or at least luxury priced medium SUV. I wouldn't say it feels a lot luxurious, but there you are. Um, and the new Toyota Corolla Cross in its first month cracked a 1,000 sales, and I think we're going to see that pretty much uh, featuring in the top sellers list every single month, perhaps at the expense of the regular Corolla, which might lose a few sales, just like we've seen from the Master 3 and CX-30 twins. Um, what about uh, the top manufacturers? 
Yeah, so uh, Toyota on top as per usual, um, up 18.6% though. So its growth was actually higher than the overall market growth, which was a great sign for that company. Um, Obviously, drowning in uh, shortages at the moment. People are waiting more than a year for some of their some of their vehicles, RAV4s and Land Cruisers. And you can't even buy a Land Cruiser 70 at all at the moment. They've paused sales to play catch up. So company is starting to, to get through that, but there's a long way to go. Ford finished second. Um, pretty much its entire sales bank of 7,823 cars was from Ranger and Everest. There was almost uh, really nothing else that it sells in any great numbers these days. Kia in third. Uh, 6,380. And not only is it in third for the month, but that was actually enough to put Kia in third place for the year, year to date. It actually overtook Mitsubishi. So that's a pretty impressive result for Kia. Um, You told somebody that five years ago, they wouldn't have believed you. Mitsubishi in fourth, Mazda in fifth, rounding out the top 10, Hyundai, which was the first brand mentioned thus far to go backwards for the month, down 13.5%. Um, but it did stay ahead of MG in seventh, Volkswagen in eighth, Isuzu Ute in ninth, and in tenth was GWM. So Great Wall Motor Haval for its first ever top ten finish, 2,462 sales. Um, that means two Chinese brands sat in the top ten, which I think might be a first. It's certainly the first that I can recall. So hell of an effort from GWM there in the luxury space Uh, If you take vans out of it and make it a nice level playing field, BMW actually outsold Mercedes-Benz, which uh, we haven't seen a lot of lately. Um, And some other sort of, I guess, notable brands that did particularly well. We saw Suzuki grow by 36%. LDV was well up. Porsche was up by nearly 200%. Renault continues to kick goals up 20%. Ram trucks converted locally here in Melbourne to right-hand drive. Sales more than doubled. Skoda was well up. Land Rover, Sangyong and Chevrolet were well up. Um, The biggest loser was Nissan, down 63% for the month, although it just cannot take a trick at the moment because it just cannot get its hands on new generation Qashqai X-Trail and Pathfinder SUVs. They are the world's most delayed vehicles um, and they're currently going through all sorts of issues um, with transport, logistics and things along those lines. So hopefully for Nissan's dealer's sake, things start to turn around there. Wongi, what have you got for me, mate? Well, you've got you've just gone through some really interesting results from a top ten, top twenty perspective for makes and models. When you start going more into segmentation, were there any interesting winners in any of the passenger and SUV segments? So the passenger segment's really kind of predictable. Sort of every single month, it's the same cars that win. You know, Kia Picanto is always the top selling micro MG three, top selling light Camry, A class, C class. Stinger. I mean, the passenger market's never that surprising. There's always a bit more differentiation in the in the SUV world, though. So the MGZS that I mentioned before was utterly dominant in the small SUV class. Um, when we look at some slightly bigger SUV models, the Land Rover Defender was the top-selling large SUV, outgunning the BMW X5. So people are loving the design of that car. Tesla Model Y more than doubled the BMW X3, which was in second place in its luxury medium SUV market. The Audi Q3 had a great month a sort of, uh, I guess, lone bright spot for Audi at the moment, which is battling with supply, and that was fairly dominant in the small SUV market. In the van space, China is coming and coming hard, so the LDV Deliver 9 uh, remains the top-selling large van. It's overtaken the Mercedes-Benz Sprinter these days when it comes to take-up in the large van space. And the Ford Ranger, um, its 4x4 sales were astronomical. So the Hilux was dominant in 4x2 as it always is. But in 4x4, 5,147,000 ranges, that was an absolute country mile ahead of the Hilux. And that's where all the profit is made. That's where all the money is made. So Ford will be particularly happy about that. Um, but to be honest with you, Wongi, there's nothing in there where I look through it that sort of makes me do a double take. There's nothing stunning. Maybe the Suzuki Jimny finishing third in the light SUV market, 567 sales. Well, after people waiting a very long time to get their hands on their Jimnys, it appears that finally that pipeline is starting to free up. Did you sell your Jimny? Uh, I haven't as yet. Uh, I continue mm. to kick the can down the road. Um, <laughs> I, I keep meaning to and I just keep putting it off because there's just life getting in the way. But um, if anyone listening wants to buy a Jimny, hit me up. 
Um, we can probably just tap into some miscellaneous territory here. I've got a little section at the bottom of my regular VFAX wrap that just talk about a few miscellaneous odds and ends. Sales are up in every single state and territory. So this is not like one or two states doing all the heavy lifting. This was unanimous growth across the entire nation, um, led by Victoria up 24.5%. Um, so that was a really, really strong result there. I imagine with all the flood damage, there might be a few more cars finding themselves on roads over the next few months. I've already talked about the category break down between SUVs like commercials and passenger cars. Won't surprise anybody to know that mid-sized SUVs and 4x4 utes are the two biggest segments. 40% of the entire market belongs just to those two segments. So medium SUVs are things like Toyota RAV4 and Mazda CX-5 and I think 4x4 utes are pretty self-explanatory. Um, private buyers, so sales to actual private people, people just like you and me, up 27.5%, whereas business fleets are only up 8% and government sales were down by 20%. So this is not company fleet sales that are driving this. This is just everyday people that are driving the, the return to sales growth. In terms of fuel type, um, diesel and petrol still, still sit right at the top, but hybrid cars with just under 7,000 sales and EVs with just over 2,000 sales, half of which were Teslas, are still showing good signs of growth. And um, in terms of our trading partners, Japan, Thailand, Korea, China and Germany respectively were our top five trading partners for the month, although I would expect China to overtake Korea in the very near future as we start getting more and more of those Teslas through. So really sort of a BAU business as usual month um, with a slightly higher growth figure than we maybe expected. But I think the signs are pretty good that the worst is behind us now for the Australian car market. Thank goodness. Uh, the full report can be found under the sales data link at Car Expert. This week's review, we hand over to you, Moco. You've been driving the Audi SQ8 performance SUV. I see the, uh, the last time you drove this was uh, two years ago. Has there been a, a big improvement since? There's been precisely one change, Mandy, but in the Audi's defence, it has been a big change. So this is not an update where they go, oh, we've changed the wheels. No, no, they've actually changed the engine. So the old one had a 4-litre V8 diesel engine with a stump pulling 900 newton metres of torque that made light work of your 3.5-tonne uh, giant luxury speedboat or polo float or whatever the heck it was you were towing with it. <laughs> In line with global tastes and the slow decline of diesel, particularly in Europe, uh, the company has moved towards a very, uh, not exactly 2022 friendly, four litre twin turbo V8 petrol engine, um, which is much more performance focused. It's also about 100 kilos lighter over the nose, which definitely helps. Um, now it's got a lot less torque than the diesel that it replaces, but it has more power and it's also 0.7 seconds quicker to 100 k's at just 4.1 seconds, which for a 2.2-tonne five-seat wow. top-of-the-tree luxury SUV is pretty bloody quick indeed. It's not quite an RS Q8, so this is where Audi's performance versions, so, you know, there's there's several layers of performance version. The RS Q8 is the full fat, just everything in there, essentially Audi's Lamborghini Urus because at the end of the day, underneath the Lambo Urus, Bentley Bentayga, Audi Q8 and Volkswagen Tiguan are kind of the same car, uh, despite the different prices and positionings and badges. Um, so, the, yeah, the RSQ8, 220 grand, whereas the SQ8 driven here, a little bit slower, a little bit quieter, but contextually and conceptually similar, is about $50,000 cheaper at $168,800 before on-road costs. Um, so definitely undercuts most of its competitors, including also the Porsche Cayenne Coupe GTS, but is hardly uh, a cheap vehicle. So, guys, what do you want to know? Uh, what sort of roads did you did you drive it on, and um, did you get a chance to put the boot into it? Yeah, so it was interesting. This was out in uh, a beautiful uh, regional Victoria in a town called Dalesford. Anyone who's from Victoria will probably know Dalesford. It's a gorgeous place. Not so beautiful at the moment, though, considering that the entire state is underwater and most of the roads are completely destroyed by potholes. And this is a car on 22-inch wheels. So that's not necessarily <laughs> the sort of combination that you want. Um, reassuringly, though, despite the fact that it was slippery as hell, it was about minus 30 degrees, the roads were covered in black ice and full of holes, this thing actually, it, it, really, it really showed what an amazing piece of engineering it is. So... It felt incredibly stable, incredibly grippy, surprisingly agile for something this big, 
bonkers fast. And, and, and Audi's Quattro all-wheel drive system, which is which is variable, so it, it defaults to being slightly rear-biased but can shuffle torque frontwards or rearwards, not fully variably but to a large degree, uh, is incredibly good. Um, it's also got some features that really help it feel smaller than it is, such as rear-wheel steering, which goes opposite direction to the fronts at low speeds. So it has a Q3's turning circle. And then at high speeds, they steer in the same direction for maximum stability. It's also got a 48-volt battery on board that powers uh, electromechanical roll stabilizers, which basically offset those body motions that you get in corners when you get lateral corning forces pushing you sideways. It, if you can almost imagine, it pushes the car up so that it stays flat in corners and a very, very tricky Audi differential that controls torque flow across the axle as well as the all-wheel drive system controlling torque flow along the drive line. So a lot of really impressive technology going on underneath uh, that new V8 engine, like I said, it's not as uh, sonically, uh, I guess, dominant as the RSQ8, which is designed to sort of be the absolute ball-immobile. It's a little bit more subtle, which is really me. I like that. I think that's where Audi's great. I think Audi's, as, as a rule, are really good when they're just a little bit under the radar, a little bit more subtle. So 373 kilowatts, 770 newton metres of torque. Down 130, yeah, down 130 newton meters on the old diesel, which would pull a stump out of a out of a paddock, but still not exactly lacking. Mated to an eight-speed Tiptronic automatic because I don't know of too many dual clutches that can handle that much torque, and and a full-time permanent quattro will drive with self-locking center diff. Um, like I said before, 4.1 seconds to 100. Air suspension, as you would imagine, which means that even with those 22-inch wheels, it actually floated over some of the worst roads I've seen in a while beautifully. <laughs> you're honestly, like, clearly you're not deliberately going out of your way to drive headlong into potholes and things like that. But when we did have to go off what you would call marble smooth tarmac, it, it really held up and, and held its own, which was surprising. Retains the three-and-a-half-ton brake trailer tone capacity of the diesel, um, and uses 12.2 litres every 100 k's, despite having cylinder deactivation. Um, I was averaging 12.3, and I wasn't driving in a particularly sensible manner. So I've got to say that fuel claim definitely stacks up. If you were somebody who really wanted to drive very, very, very long distances between refilling, you're probably going to miss that diesel. But if you're the sort of person that's buying this for performance, and let's face it, that's what most Australians want, it's probably a better fit for the car. Um, and to be honest with you, at this price point, this much tech, this much power in a car that looks this good, I actually think it's pretty good value for money. I mean, and Mongi and Mandy, I'd love to get your insights, but when you consider this thing competes against the likes of the Mercedes GLE Coupe, the BMW X6, the Porsche Cayenne Coupe, none of which are oil paintings, I reckon this thing looks superb. I think it's one of the best-looking SUVs money can buy um, against some pretty uggo competition, just quietly. <laughs> what do you guys reckon? I mean, the, the one that I've run was pictured in that beautiful fiery orange paint, which is not your sort of typical Audi paint, but, but what do you guys think about it? Joe was asking, does it come in green? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I agree with you, Mocha. What about you, Joe? Yeah, I've always loved the design of the Q8. And like Moko said, um, given the standard for Uggers that the um, normal Coupe SUV set have um, set as a trend, um, <laughs> the, the Q8 is refreshingly well um, balanced and well proportioned and I think it's just a really good – it doesn't matter whether you're looking at a 50 TDI or 50, uh, 55 TFSI or an RSQ8, they all look really good. I like that they have a couple of these cool colours as well because it sort of suits the the look and feel of that car and it's got a very concepty vibe about it and um, mm. it's definitely one that, you know, if I was – a dad with a couple of kids or whatever, I'd probably look at something like that if I wanted to cart my family around in, in luxury and style because it gives you all the really cool um, Audi bits that you get in high-end Audis, like all the tech and things like that, blends it with a really nice, sexy body. And it's still fairly niche when you think about it. Like you don't see a whole lot yeah. of them around um, and there's some real presence about it. Now, the question um, follow-up for, for Moco that I have is, given you've spent um, a bit of time with the diesel and with the V8 uh, petrol now, if you if Audi Australia was to offer the choice of both engines at the same time, which unfortunately they don't, which would you be more inclined to choose? 
Personally, I'd, I'd go the petrol. I think it's horses for courses. If you're somebody who's towing, so if you're if you're buying this thing because you want to tow, like I alluded to before, your giant speedboat or your giant float or whatever it is, the diesel would be your pick. If you were somebody that was going on a big caravan tour, if you're someone that was going to drive long, long, long trips, like perhaps you're you're somebody with money who has a, a property out in regional Australia that you want to go visit, the diesel would do that better. Um, I would personally go the petrol, but it very much is a sort of horses for courses approach. And based on typical Australian buyer behaviours, diesel is popular in some parts of the SUV world, but once you start getting up into this echelon of performance, um, I think petrol probably makes more sense because I don't know if fuel bills are the sort of thing that Q8 buyers or SQ8 buyers are all that concerned about. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you think about the uh, interior moco? Yeah, so it was really more of a revisit uh, than, a, than a whole new look because the interior hasn't really changed, which is not a bad thing because the interior is actually lovely. I mean, Audi is pretty well known for its great interiors and these days that doesn't mean that it's all solid metal tactile touch points and it's not about that anymore. It's about great flashy screens. But what Audi's been really good at is making its screens well integrated so they're not big screens it's a 10 inch thinner screen with a slightly smaller one below it and an Audi's quite big circa 12 inch virtual cockpit digital instrument cluster but it's all really easy to use it has haptic feedback so it sort of vibrates under your fingers so you know that it's acknowledging your inputs it's got fixed menus running vertically up the side so you can always find your shortcuts everything loads extremely quickly and it's beautifully located it's not some tablet that's just sort of stuck onto the dash with super glue it actually is like a holistic part of the overall design i tend to hate touchscreens for climate controls I think it's the utter path to madness, but Audi's is the best of a bad bunch because it has that vibrating feedback and you don't have to dig through menus to access it. It's just always there. It's always available to find. So if you're going to do it, do it like Audi. Um, the most of the materials are just beautiful. Those one-piece, you know, Valcona leather seats with massaging and heating and cooling and all that are just beautiful. Like you could sit in them all day and you'd, you'd get out feeling a million bucks the interior lights, lots of different LED light signatures. Um, so a, a really beautiful place to spend time. The back seats, there's only a five-seater. There is an SQ7, which is the seven-seat sort of sister car of this one that's got electrically deployable third-row seats. This is the five-seater. I'm 6'4", and I had room in the back, and I'm about as you know tall as a rear occupant's probably going to get. So I think room there is good. More than 600 litres of boot space too. So it's a nice, big, practical five-seat SUV. And I'm really impressed by the amount of features you get in this car. This is not some stripper where they've said, you know what, you've got to pay options to get everything. Audi's pretty much fully loaded it, even down to having matrix headlights, soft closing doors, air suspension, um, you know, all of the tech, a 730-watt Bang & Olufsen 3D audio system. There are some options. So you can, you can fit a sensory package with a 1,920-watt B&O sound system with little tweeters that rise out of the dashboard, kind of like a, like a I don't even know, they just rise up. They're, they're amazing. They sound that sounds amazing. Like just get your Spotify into those and it'll be a mind bender. Um, and, you know, things like suede headlining and massaging seats and heated rear seats and air ionizer and all this stuff. So I'd probably tick that box because stuff it, you're already spending this kind of money. Why not? Uh -huh. There's the dynamic package with the roll stabilization and the Quattro Sport diff that I mentioned before. That really should be standard, not $11,000, to be honest with you. Um, one option that's incredibly stupid is ceramic brakes, $19,500. No, don't. If you're on an autobahn going 300 k's an hour and you've got to slow down, yes. You're not, you're not taking this thing on a racetrack and in Australia you're not going more than 110. You don't need ceramic brakes, please, for the love of God, save your money. Um, but, you know, luxury buyers need options, right? Um, so, so by and large inside, just lovely, just a good place to spend time, super comfortable, super high-tech. Probably the only weak spot is Audi's obsession with piano black trim. And I know that we whinge about it all the time, but this is almost particularly bad. It is just everywhere. Every, everywhere you look is just shiny black trim, which is a magnet for dust, for scratches, for hair, for smudges, for sun glare. This is nothing good about it. It looks great in a showroom for two seconds and then it's completely hopeless for the rest mm -hmm. of the time. Audi is not the only brand that does this. Most brands do. But but Audi, I think, in this instance is particularly guilty. So so one little negative there that I was able to find. What car expert rating did you give it, Moko? 
Yes, yeah, so I finished off by saying that if you want something just a little more understated than your RSQ8, the Petrol SQ8 fills the gap perfectly. It's a seriously quick and capable yet comfortable luxury crossover with tons of road presence and a mostly excellent interior, which I think sums it up pretty much as is. Um, pros were its new petrol V8 cutting weight and adding pace and a better soundtrack. Beautifully finished interior with intuitive interfaces and the air suspension's right. Negatives were inferior fuel economy, that smudgy dust-prone interior and the lack of a standard dynamic package. All up, that equals a score of 8.2 out of 10. Please head over to carexpert.com.au and check out the review. I have to say it's not been our most read review of recent times, which is probably a good sign because we are trying to talk to just everyday car buyers rather than RS and SQ8 buyers. But nevertheless, go check it out. Tell us what you think in the comments below. And that brings an end to this week's podcast. What cars have we got visiting our garages next week, Moko? So this week we have got a lot of cars, uh, actually, more cars than people. That's going to be fun. Um, we've got the BMW iX M60, so the new top-of-the-tree BMW luxury EV, uh, Mercedes-AMG A45S and Audi RS3 Sportback. You might speculate we're going to put them head-to-head, but, you know, I don't want to give away too many state secrets. The new Toyota Corolla Cross in top-spec Atmos all-wheel drive hybrid, guys. Mercedes-Benz EQA 354-Matic, that company's new small luxury SUV. A revisit of the Suzuki Vitara Turbo all-grip, all-wheel drive. Updated Volkswagen T-Roc in R-Line, guys. We've also got a Kia Stinger up in Sydney with uh, the one and only Al Bors and a Ford Everest Trend by Turbo in Brizzy. The guys up there getting a crack in that. So plenty of metal for us to get through over the next few days. Excellent. And do we have plenty of events in the calendar, J-Wo? We have a couple this week. Next week will be bigger, but I'll let next week's panel discuss that. Um, MoCo is travelling to a battery recycling showcase tomorrow in Melbourne, which will be quite exciting. That's down in Altona, isn't it? Eastern suburbs, but, you know... Industrial. Yeah, if you, so if you, fl- if you flip the, the compass on its side, then it would be the eastern suburbs if you're <laughs> But anyway, never mind my geography. Um, and then later this week, Paul is actually going to get a first look and early drive, I think, of a Lexus RZ prototype that um, the company has flown in ahead of its sales introduction midway through next year, which is quite exciting because Toyota and Lexus have been a little bit behind in the introduction of EV. So I reckon this is a pretty big deal for them excellent all right that's a wrap thank you very much mike costello and james wong Pleasure, guys. thanks team